Hello, I'm Danny Aiken, President of Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary. We want to thank you for listening to this chapel message. Our mission at Southeastern is to seek to glorify the Lord Jesus Christ by equipping students to serve the church and fulfill the Great Commission. We hope that you enjoy this chapel message and that you will visit our website. It's www.sebts.edu. There you can learn more about our school and what the Lord is doing here. We hope you enjoy the message. Thank you for being a part of what we're doing here. to be here to be able to speak to you from God's Word this morning. If we could just open up with me with a word of prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, as we look at Your Word this morning, would we pray that it would be a scalpel that You would take to our hearts to be able to dissect the sin that's in our life, to be able to show us the path of walking in a way that is worthy of Your Gospel. Lord, might we be challenged to use the way that we live our lives to be able to proclaim Your Gospel to the world that is around us. Lord, we pray that Your Word would shine forth during this time. We pray this in Your mighty, wonderful, and gracious name. Amen. So when you think of English, you probably think of English as this homogeneous language that exists. Now you might kind of narrow it just a little bit, Call it American English. Matter of fact, if somebody from the pond was to make their way over here, you might want to say they ain't speaking that American English. But actually, when you examine English here in America, there's lots of different varieties, lots of different dialects. Matter of fact, research shows that there are major, 24 major dialect regions within the United States. 24 major different re- regions. And there's plenty of more sub-dialects that occur out there. One of the famous ones that ran around for a while on social media was the map that showed whether you uh, pronounced a carbonated drink pop, soda, or you just called it Coke, no matter what the label was on the can. And you can imagine as you saw that, kind of how that map plays out and, and what it looks as you can imagine the people that you talk to and where they're from, and immediately it starts to conjure up some pictures of who they are and their backgrounds. Matter of fact, on TV, one of the shows that I love to watch is Swamp People. There's nothing like a show about those crazy Cajuns who are Americans that we need subtitles to understand what they're saying. (laughs) But even here in our own state, we have many different dialects. As a matter of fact, if you head over to the coast, over to the Outer Banks, uh, there's something that is referred to as Okracroke Brogue. Ocracoke Brogue. And so here's an example of a sentence for you. And now this is a sentence that I put together, so it's maybe not one that you're going to hear all the time. But it's a, simp- a sentence that I put together with some of the words that are unique to this particular dialect. So here it is. That dingbatter was sitting on that whopper-jawed pizer and was mocked after a day of fishing, even though it was slick cam out there. All right, I'll say it again. That dingbatter was sitting on that whopper-jawed pizer and was mocked after a day of fishing, even though it was slit cam out there. All right, so let me translate so that we understand what's going on here. That person that isn't from around here was sitting on that crooked porch and was beat after a day of fishing, even though there was no wind and the water was like glass. So you can see, even just a few hours away from here, the change in the dialect and the words that are used 
And those dialects show us who we are and where we are from. And in this passage today, what I want us to see is that Paul talks to us about a dialect that we are to have as a follower of Christ. And we're going to be looking in Philippians chapter 2, verses 14 through 18 this morning. Philippians chapter 2, verses 14 through 18. We are to have a dialect that is going to be distinguished from the world because our vocabulary and our grammar are different. Matter of fact, in this passage we're going to see that there's one major component that's going to be missing from our dialect that exists in the rest of the world. So let's go ahead and read this passage this morning and then we'll dig into it. Paul says to the church in Philippi, Do all things without grumbling or questioning that you may be blameless and innocent, children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life so that in the day of Christ I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain, even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith. I am glad and rejoice with you And likewise, you also should be glad and rejoice from me. So a bit of a context here. Paul's writing to this church in Philippi, and he's really setting the foundation of what he is writing to them about in chapter 1, verse 27, where he says, Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear you that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side, for the faith of the gospel. Here's this foundation, this, this kind of context in which we look at through this whole book of Philippians. And he goes on in the next passages in chapter 2 and talking about how it is that we consider others as more important than ourselves. He goes even further to give us the example that we have in Christ in chapter 2, verses 5 through 11, of the extent to which he went to consider others as more important than themselves by dying on a cross and shedding his blood for us. And then he makes a transition off of this into 12 and 13 where he really hits on the topic of sanctification that we're called to in our Christian life. He says in Philippians chapter 2, verse 12, Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now not only in my presence but much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. It's within this context of what he's calling us to, and this ties into letting our manner of life be worthy of the gospel that we've been called unto. And with this, he launches into this example here that we are to be different from the world. And the way that we are to be different from the world is in this dialect of ours. And So I first want us to see in verse 14 that the dialect of the follower of Christ is marked by not complaining like the rest of the world by not complaining like the rest of the world. First of all, we see in verse 14, do all things. With this word all, we notice that this is all-encompassing. There's not exceptions. There's not exceptions when it comes to grumbling and disputing. There's not kind of like free zones that exist out there. That we don't grumble and dispute except for these situations. We have freedom to be able to do it. But it's in all things that we are to be without grumbling and disputing. Now, there's different takes on what exactly grumbling and disputing are. These two different words are these really synonyms that are being uh, described here. And commentators kind of differ on the position that are those. One commentator said in describing this that the first term describes 
the grumbling discontents among the congregation. And the second depicts the evil reasonings and disputes that usually follow. I don't know why, but I hear that and I immediately think back to Looney Tunes and Yosemite Sam and his frustrations with Bugs Bunny and just how he begins to grumble under his breath and why it is then that he needs to go after this rabbit. And generally, we see that when we complain, we like to justify it. It's not just simply complaining, but we justify it. We, you know, I don't mean to complain, but... And then we launch off into why it is that we do complain. In addition, the all things not only refers obviously to our speech, but even to the way that we act. It's kind of like the little boy that you look at and you tell to sit down. And he doesn't want to sit down. But yet, you finally get him to sit down, but you know in his heart he's still standing up in the way, that he, the way that he's looking at you. And we even respond in this way with our grumblings and our disputes, not just with the words, but also our actions. This is evident with the Israelites. The Israelites that we read about in the Old Testament, they were never satisfied. As a matter of fact, in Exodus 16, 1-3, it says that they set out from Elam... And all the congregation of the people of Israel came to the wilderness of Sin, which is between Elam and Sinai. And on the fifteenth day of the second month after they had departed from the land of Egypt, and the whole congregation of the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness. The people of Israel said to them, Would that we had died by the hand of the Lord in the land of Egypt. And we sat by the meat pots and ate bread to the full. For you have brought us out into this wilderness to kill the whole assembly with hunger. The psalmist in 106.25 in this psalm that recounts the history of Israel makes this statement about the Israelites in context of this passage from Exodus. That they murmured in their tents and did not obey the voice of the Lord. Therefore, He raised His hand and swore to them that He would make them fall in the wilderness. And because of this, an entire generation never got to see the promised land. Think about it just a minute. How much of your weekly conversations are filled with grumbling and disputing? Think about it. Just take a second. Think about it. If you're like me, what you realize is that a vast amount of your conversations are filled with grumbling and disputing. Matter of fact, we quickly turn from the weather to what's going wrong. Sometimes what's going wrong with the weather. But why is it that we do this? Well, here's some examples. These aren't the only reasons why, but here are some examples. Selfishness. The timing's wrong for us. We don't like how something happened and when it happened. It's all about us. It's not done how we like it. It might be the right, right timing, but it's not just done how we wanted it to be done. Or somehow we were easily offended by what happened. Likewise, we can find in those situations where we have a lack of faith, we might be going through a trial and we're not seeing the benefit that James describes in James chapter 1. Or maybe we somehow convince ourselves that God doesn't actually care about us or isn't really fully in control. Now, to give us a little bit of definition here, what is not grumbling? I don't think grumbling is addressing sin appropriately. All right, if we are to address sin appropriately, that's not grumbling. So don't think that just because somebody points out something is wrong that therefore they are grumbling. Or providing, providing suggestions in a situation. A lot of it has to do in the attitude in which we have presented it. And I think that's how we can know when it is that we've gone into grumbling and disputing. When the attitude behind it is a, I am going to correct this problem and I am going to correct it now. 
that's where we head into grumbling and disputing. Or sharing your suggestion with everyone that you can. Not just the person that actually would be helped by your suggestion. Also being the one that's always providing the helpful suggestions. When we work to justify our comments, that but statement that comes with the things that we say. When we can't let something go. When weeks later we're still thinking about it and are burning by the actions that somebody did. And any time that there's a lack of reasonableness in our speech and conduct, anyone and anything can become the object of our grumbling and disputing. But regardless of what it is, the text is clear that our life is to be lived as believers without it. So the second thing that I want us to see from the text this morning is that the dialect of the follower of Christ is evidence of our sanctification. The dialect of the follower of Christ is evidence of our sanctification. Look at verse 15. Paul says that you may be blameless and innocent children of God without blemish. Now what's he talking about here? That if we simply don't grumble and dispute, somehow that makes us blameless and innocent before God? Of course not. As we understand the context of what's going on here, he's not talking about that this brings us salvation, but it is proof of our salvation and proof that we are going through the sanctification process. As we know, the context is in verse 12 through 13 where we have been called to work out our salvation with fear and trembling. Therefore, we avoid grumbling and disputing because we are a redeemed people and should not be selfish and always wholly trust on God. Keep in mind, sanctification is where we are working towards displaying in our earthly steps what is true in our eternal reality. It's where we are working towards displaying in our earthly steps what is true in our eternal reality. We are children of God and therefore we should live like it. Now, why do you think in this whole process of sanctification that grumbling and disputing is so closely tied to this big issue of us becoming more like Christ? I think James in James chapter 3 hits on it well for us. In James 3, 2, James says, For we all stumble in many ways, and if anyone does not stumble in what he says, he is a perfect man, able also to bridle his whole body. James's whole point is, is how speech is so devastating, and the use of our tongue can simply devastate a situation. Therefore, I think it's appropriate when Paul ties this idea, this idea of grumbling and questioning directly into our growth in becoming more like Christ. In Colossians 3, 1 through 5, Paul says, If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is. Seated at the right hand of God, set your mind on the things that are above, not on the things that are on this earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. And when Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with Him. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. Sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. And of course, that's not an extensive list that's there, because we can add grumbling and disputing to it of the things that we are to put behind. Imagine if you would if you had a broken leg. If you had a broken leg and you walked in here today, and you had a cast on, we would understand why you would be hobbling awkwardly here in chapel. But if after your period of time and your healing and your physical therapy, you continued to walk around and hobble awkwardly, we would think something was wrong with you. And this is where it is that we find ourselves as believers. 
when our speech, when our dialect is dominated by grumbling and questioning, what we're doing is we're sit, we are just hobbling around awkwardly as Christians through this world, acting in a way that we should not act. If you want some more insight on this, on just this whole process of sanctification, I'd like to recommend to you my pastor's book, The Infinite Journey, uh, by Andy Davis, which really kind of delves into this whole picture of sanctification and what it is that we are called to as believers. And so we've seen that as believers in Christ, that we are to have this dialect that's marked not by complaining, like the rest of the world, that it's evidence, as a follower of Christ, it's evidence of our sanctification. And that I also want us to see that the dialect of the follower of Christ serves to give us a platform to proclaim Christ. We are the Great Commission Seminary. We are the ones that are calling us out to proclaim the gospel to this lost world around us. And this ties in directly to how it is that we do it. For we are called to be blameless and innocent in the midst, in verse 15, in the middle of verse 15, in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation. It's interesting how we are blameless and innocent, and yet at the same time this world that is around us is described as crooked and twisted. But what does it say here? Among you, whom you shine as lights in the world. Some translations of this talk about shining stars in the universe. This summer, we were with our leadership team here at Southeastern on a retreat in Chase City, Virginia. I remember Dr. Lederbach at one point in time called us out to, to, to look at the sky to see what it looked like. There's no light pollution in the area. You walk out there and it seems like you can see every star that has ever been made. In addition, you, see the, you could even see the, the kind of the cloudiness of the Milky Way that stretched across the sky. Not a cloud in the sky. And you looked at that beauty of that. As those stars shined forth the glory of God's creation. And likewise, we as believers shine forth as the glory of God's creation made in His image and redeemed to this world that is around us. Matthew 5.16, we are told by Christ in the same way to let your light shine before others so that they may see your glory of your good works and praise to your Father and give praise to your Father who is in heaven. So we shine forth this. And in verse 16, we see that we hold fast to the word of life or as some translations say, hold forth. There's a difference of opinion as to what's the best way to translate that, whether it's holding fast or holding forth. Holding fast simply referring to the fact that we latch on to the gospel ourselves and holding forth is the proclamation of the gospel. And what we know is that both of those truths are evident in Scripture. And that this is what we do. And in the end, while both of them are claimed there, what we see is that we have this role as believers in Christ to do this. And it's interesting that with this, that the way that we talk without grumbling or disputing directly ties into it. Imagine... You're in a work setting. You've spent the last ten minutes in a conversation complaining about the ignorant decision that your boss just made. And you commiserate together for that period of time. And then something potentially happens where the Holy Spirit pricks your heart and you realize, you know, that person that you're talking with, that you're complaining with, is in need of the Gospel. Imagine yourself making the transition to the Gospel in that conversation that you have been redeemed, you have been set free from the sin in your life, it would be very, very hard to be able to do it. 
Matter of fact, in James chapter 3 as well, in verse 9 and 10, James says, With the tongue we bless our Lord and Father, and if we curse people who are made in the likeness of God, from the same mouth come blessings and curses. My brothers, these things ought not to be so. And while you might say, okay, in that one conversation that might be the case, just imagine what it's the witness that you're providing for those that you're around you when all it is is weeks and weeks and weeks of conversation after conversation of grumbling and disputing. We have to keep in mind that we have a goal as believers, and that is to proclaim the gospel to the world that's around us. Therefore, we have to be careful with our speech, careful with the dialect that we use around the world. In Colossians 4, 5-6, through 6, we are clearly called to walk in wisdom towards outsiders, making the best use of your time. Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. So how do you interact with these conversations? How do you deal with these conversations as believers? Sometimes it's just simple non-participation. Sometimes while there's co-workers going on, you just choose not to participate or with even fellow students, or with professors, or with people in the administration. At some point in time, people are going to wonder why you're not participating. Because this is just what people do. We complain about things. And it's at that point in time that we have an opportunity to be able to proclaim the gospel. They're going to think that we're foolish. But as a reminder, in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, we are told that it is with the foolish things of this world that we will confound the wise. And the glories of God's gospel will be, will be proclaimed. We let them know that I don't do this because, you know what, I'm content because of who I am in Christ. And whatever problems might exist today are only temporary in light of what it is that He's done for us. What are some situations where this might happen so that you can prepare yourself and identify for them? I gave you the example already of the boss just making a poor decision that people just don't understand. The crazy neighbor... That's the talk of the cul-de-sac or even student housing. The, press, the professor who you think unfairly graded your exam and has you doing an, or has you doing an assignment that you just think is absolutely pointless. The administration that makes a decision that surely any person with common sense would have made differently. The student that has the complete inability to follow clear instructions in the syllabus for an assignment. Or even the things that are happening in a church. And let me warn you, especially with these contexts that are things in the church and dealing with with unbelievers, be careful as you watch yourself of not grumbling and disputing. That you be careful not to take your frustrations with what might be happening in your church and express those to the world. You talk about a gospel killer right there. It's Christ that is to be the stumbling block. Not how it is that people view the church through the complaints that we bring to them. So we've seen that the dialect of the follower of Christ is marked by not complaining like the rest of the world. The dialect of the follower of Christ is evidence of our sanctification. It serves to give us a platform to proclaim the gospel. And so you might be wondering then, what's our action that we take now? Is it just simply a vow of silence? What is it that we do instead? We're not called to a vow of silence. We might think back to the famous statement that our mothers used to tell us if we don't have anything nice to say don't say anything at all that's not actually what we're called to do in this situation we are called to replace this speech of this grumbling and disputing with something else 
And so let's finally look at the last part of our passage where we see that the dialect of the follower of Christ is filled with rejoicing. Paul says in verse 17, Even if I am being poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. And likewise, you also should be glad and rejoice with me. Paul sees his life as the sacrificial offering that's being poured out for these other believers in Christ. And keep in mind, Paul has plenty of reasons to complain. Think about all the things that have gone wrong, the stonings, the beatings, the jailings, the shipwrecks, all the ways that he has been mistreated by the Israelites. He has many, many, many reasons for which to complain. But in, in Philippians 4.10-13, he says, I rejoice in the Lord greatly that now at length you have revived your concern for me. For you were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. Not that I'm speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low. I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through Him who strengthens me. Paul's solution wasn't to walk around in silence to avoid his grumbling and disputing. Instead, his solution was to replace what he said with the rejoicing of all the things that he had to be joyful for. And in verse 18, he calls the Philippian believers and he calls us likewise to rejoice like he rejoices. This is going to take work. This is hard. No one said sanctification is easy. But this is going to be hard work to actively pursue a lifestyle that is not marked by grumbling and disputing. Instead, replace our language with rejoicing. If you, if you simply play through in your mind a conversation that's filled with multiple statements of rejoicing rather than grumbling and disputing, it'll feel very awkward. Very awkward. You're not going to be sure what it is you to, you're to do. It's a reminder in Ephesians 5, 18-21, Paul says, "...and do not get drunk with wine, for this is debauchery." but be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart, and giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, and submitting to one another out of reference to Christ. So, you have a choice. Live like the eternal state in which you used to find yourself, or live according to the eternal state that you find yourself in as a follower of Christ. At Southeastern, we call ourselves a Great Commission Seminary. If we're going to be a Great Commission Seminary, then we need to be students, faculty, and staff who aren't filling our conversations with grumbling and disputing, but are filling our conversations with thankfulness and rejoicing. Our tongues, just as James reminded us, is like this rudder on a ship or can set this tiny spark that can set an entire forest ablaze. Therefore, we have a decision. Will you, be employ, will you employ the dialect of the follower of Christ? Or will you return to the dialect of your life before you were redeemed? May we, by the power of the Spirit, through the hand of God, learn and employ the dialect of the follower of Christ. That it's marked not by complaining like the rest of the world. That it's evidence of our sanctification. That it gives us a platform to be able to proclaim Christ. And that it is filled with rejoicing. Pray with me. Dear Heavenly Father, 
Your Word is truth. And we have been confronted this morning from Your Word about what dominates so much of our conversations. Lord, let these things not mark our lives. But let our lives be filled with rejoicing and thankfulness so that the world around us is able to clearly see something different and that we are able to proclaim You to those in need. Lord, help us in our sanctification. As Your power works in us through Your Holy Spirit, help us to be more fruitful for Your kingdom and to walk in a manner that's worthy of the Gospel of Jesus Christ. And we pray this in Your mighty, wonderful, and gracious name. Amen. Thank you again for listening to this chapel message from Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary. If you are thinking about theological education on the undergraduate or graduate level, including doctoral studies, we hope that you consider us. If you also find these chapel messages encouraging and a blessing to your walk with Christ, we hope that you will consider financially supporting Southeastern. Our graduates are literally serving the kingdom across this globe, working to carry the gospel of Jesus Christ to a lost and dying world. Your gifts will help to train more, and they will serve as a worthwhile investment in God's kingdom. You can find more information about attending Southeastern or supporting us financially at www.sebts.edu. We cover your prayers and trust that God will bless every good work you do for His glory. Thank you for joining us in our chapel services.